<clears throat> Welcome to another episode of Bitcoin Tech Talk. My name is Jimmy Song, and you can always find this newsletter at jimmysong.substack.com to get it in your un- inbox every Monday at 9 a.m. Decentralization requires responsibility. Bitcoin Tech Talk issue number 276. There's been a recent trend of users being deplatformed, moving to other platforms. Many have gotten banned from Twitter, so they'll go to alternatives like Parler or Getter or something else that's similar. The sentiment is that this platform won't ban them or add public notices about COVID or election fraud about their tweets. The problem, of course, is that there's no guarantees, and it's very possible that they could be, get deplatformed from these new places. In addition, as Parler found out, such platforms rely on other platforms which can deplatform them. There are multiple layers of centralization in most internet applications. A modern internet service has many single points of failure. The first and most obvious is the service itself. They have a terms of service and user agreement, which almost always have some vague language that amounts to the company can ban users whenever they want. But that's not the only single point of failure. The cloud provider may ban the service. A DDoS prevention platform may ban the service. The DNS may refuse to service the service's domain. The content delivery provider may refuse to service queries for that service. App stores may ban the app for that service. At the extreme, countries may ban the service from computers within their borders. In a sense, there are many different platforms on which, <clears throat> which a service relies on, any of which can, in essence, prevent access. Platforms, in other words, are centralized, and they are choke points. Censorship can happen at any level because the data flows through these platforms, and stopping the data from flowing means it's no longer served. The way to combat censorship is not to switch platforms, but to run your own server. A direct connection between server and client means there's no central entity that can censor. We see this in Bitcoin. Users run their own servers called nodes, which allows them to transact with whichever nodes they wish. The act of running your own server is what prevents the censorship of transactions. If we had to submit our transactions to a central place, then that place would be able to censor and would potentially could potentially use that power to rent seek. Fiat money, on the other hand, is very centralized and only authorized transactions go through. Banks typically sit in the middle and are by law required to check that they collect information about certain transactions on behalf of government. As compensation, they often get advantages, which allow them to get very rich without adding much value. In other words, the U.S. dollar system is really a platform, with all the benefits and drawbacks of centralization. The main benefits are that it's generally pretty fast, convenient, and reliable. The drawbacks are financial censorship, money printing, burdensome regulation, and much more. Bitcoin fixes the drawbacks, and as a trade-off, it's not quite as fast, as convenient, or as reliable as the U.S. dollar infrastructure. When we think about tech platforms, the same trade-offs are present. Think about email, for example. Gmail is fast, convenient, and reliable. Gmail is also much less private, and your data can be held hostage when you're using too much space on their servers, or they mistaken your account as a bot. Running your own email server means more privacy and less vulnerability to their mistakes and or extortion, but also means it's probably going to be slower, less convenient, and less reliable. This is the trade-off of platforms. If we take charge of our own data, then we have to be willing to take the responsibility that comes with it. For email, that responsibility is running an email server. What most people want is all the reliability, convenience, and speed of a centralized platform with all of the privacy, uncensorability, and sovereignty of a decentralized server. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Indeed, this is what 
altcoins capitalize on. They are described as platforms because they're centralized. They claim all the benefits of decentralized systems. In reality, it's all the unreliability, inconvenience, and slowness of decentralization with the lack of privacy, censorability, and cheapness of centralization. They pretend users can have their cake and eat it too while taking advantage of them through massive rent-seeking. Reality requires trade-offs. Either you trust a centralized platform and get all the drawbacks of centralization, like their ability to sell your data, or you pay for your own server. Freedom does not come for free. Responsibility is the other side of freedom, and that has a cost. Until we're willing to pay that cost, there is no freedom to be had. Just new platforms that can do with us what they want. So I wrote this uh, sort of as a as a thought, uh, you know, that I wanted to clarify. Basically, the idea is that a lot of people think, okay, if I just move to another platform, then it'll be better, and that's not the case because another platform is another centralized entity, and they'll have their own rules. Um, now you can have lots of different smaller centralized things, and you could keep moving uh, from one to another. But I think a much better solution is to actually be decentralized, run your own server, run your own software, um, and that—that's the real problem here. Is that every, everyone is depending on software running on somebody else's computer, and that's essentially what Gmail, all these web services are. Um, people don't want to pay the cost of running their own servers, and instead rely on internet. Uh, you know, service providers to do whatever it is that they want to do. Um, and, you know, if you actually want freedom, we're going to have to go a completely different way, uh, which is mostly uh, running your own stuff. All right, let's take a look at Bitcoin. Luke Dash Jr. reviews OpCTV. The review of the BIP is interesting, but the activation method is what got my attention. Luke remains strongly opposed to BIP9 activation and gave a hard knack or rejection of this part of the proposal. The speedy trial part is interesting as the lot uh, LOT equals true or LOT equals false debate will surely come back. My sense is that this proposal will be more controversial than Taproot, so activation methods and such will matter even more than it did on Taproot. So um, currently, you know, OpCTV is something that is being debated. Luke Dash Jr. did a, uh, a review of it and his review is pretty thorough. Um, but the one activation method thing is the thing that really caught my attention because he's he's still strictly opposed to BIP9. Now, the difference between BIP8 and BIP9 are like absolutely tiny. Um, but, you know, the, it, it, it caused a giant blow up among developers and uh, almost, uh, you know, a derailed taproot and so on. So. Um, you know, on a more controversial proposal, I think it's going to really come to a head. So um, I'm not sure exactly what form that'll take, uh, but surely this is uh, not the end of the story. Jameson Lopp explores why sync times took longer in 2021 than in 2020. He wrote a crawler. He examined timeouts. He looked at latency and uploaded upload bandwidths and determined that bandwidth is just slower because most people are using ISPs, which generally have lower upload bandwidth. There's also the possibility that many connections end up in a loop trying to download blocks, but end up not being uh, able to. His conclusion is that it's a minor uh, annoyance. The post shows why nodes need low requirements. So, uh, you know, he examined it. It turns out like um, bandwidth requirements are probably the reason why the initial block download is slow. Um, 
But the main thing that I got out of it is, okay, like it's very important that the requirements kept, be kept reasonably low because otherwise, like, uh, you know, your node won't sync and so on. I mean, try, try syncing an Ethereum node. It's like near impossible and takes way too many resources and you need very, very expensive hardware and so on. Um, on uh, For Bitcoin, you can essentially run it on a Raspberry Pi or something to that effect because it's, uh, you know, it, it doesn't require as much. But bandwidth tends to be one of those things that's kind of universal. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, some people can uh, afford gigabit Ethernet. Other people cannot, and they have much slower ones. Um, how are you going to make sure that they can sync? And that that's the key thing um, that I think he's pointing out. Shortbits ex explains how taproot funds in one particular output were actually burned. It turns out that the taproot output had a public point, really just the X coordinate, that was invalid. But the network accepted it and the output is no longer spendable. It may seem that the logical thing to do would be to make such outputs not transmit. But then there's an attack where batched outputs would could be stalled by a single user who sends to one of these unspendable addresses. So uh, the the public point was uh, the, the X coordinate was not a valid X coordinate for that particular um, uh, for, you know, uh, in the sec P 256 K1 curve. So, you know, it's an invalid output, um, yet, you know, it. Uh, they made a BEC32M address out of it, and it, it looks uh, normal on the blockchain. It's just unspendable. And that's kind of like a foot gun, right? Like, you don't, you don't want that to happen. I, I, I think it would be incumbent on a lot of wallets to check for that as, uh, as they, you know, look at uh, BEC32M addresses and so on. CoinKite has two new products, TapSigner and SatsCard, both use NFC, the first to sign a transaction and the second to be something like an open dime. They're essentially, they, they've essentially done something that's like a hardware wallet, but using near-field communication instead of, say, QR codes or SD cards. I don't know the NFC spec, but this seems like a pretty solid way to make offline signing work. And the fact that these are in a card form factor makes it much easier to organize and manage. So um, <clears throat> NFC uh, is near-field communication. A lot of cell phones use it. Um, they decided to take this tech and use it for their... Uh, with these cards. So you can essentially sign something with a card uh, or, uh, or you know, have a card carry uh, a certain amount of Bitcoin and you can sort of verify it using, using that. Um, I imagine it uh, works with a phone and so on that, that can also communicate via NFC. It's a really interesting idea, um, you know, and it, it opens up a whole new deck of possibilities. Lightning. All right. PlebPay is a simple paywall using Lightning. Here's a quick demo. I'm surprised no one has really done this yet with Lightning, as this seems like an obvious way to deliver digital goods. Selling a PDF book, software license, or an MP3 song would seem like ideal use cases for something like this. Of course, this requires a server that can serve up the content, so perhaps that's the limitation. So uh, PlebPay, it's, uh, it's basically... Uh, a little paywall, um, and you can paywall pretty much anything, um, and it's, uh, it's sort of like a proof of concept at the moment. But so it's a really good idea. You can you can have uh, little pieces of content that would be too bothersome, for example, to go and search out somewhere else, um, especially if it's like insanely cheap. Um, and that that I think is is the right way to do it, especially as a way to. Uh, grab like large files or something like that, which requires some bandwidth, which costs money. 
Um, Simple Lightning is a newsletter for Lightning Network development. This is a more technical newsletter than your typical Lightning Network newsletter as it goes through individual pull requests, much like the Bitcoin Optech is for Bitcoin. I've subscribed and encourage you to as well. Um, it's a cool newsletter uh, by a couple people in Austin, Anthony Running and Kiara Robles, both from Blockstream. Um, pretty good to understand sort of lightning stuff that's going on. SatSale is a lightweight personal Bitcoin and lightning payment acceptance software. This is much more lightweight than, say, a BTC pay server. And for that reason, has some benefits. I love that there's something you can just throw on based on the lightning node that you run already. I hope they continue to develop this software for usage by Pleb. So um, BTC pay, I believe you have to like run a node like locally and have it connected. I think with uh, SatSale, you can connected a little more loosely. Um, so BTC pay server tends to be very tightly integrated uh, or relatively tightly in integrated to your own node. Uh, SatSail is a little more looser. Um, anyway, I, I like having competition. I like seeing uh, alternatives and uh, use cases based on what people want. Economics, engineering, etc. Grant Gilliam explains why 1031 is Investing in Bitcoin infrastructure companies, the main argument is threefold. First, for any 100% BTC portfolio, Bitcoin companies, for any non-100% BTC portfolio, Bitcoin companies present a different risk-reward trade-off. Second, some Bitcoin companies can outperform Bitcoin. Third, Bitcoin companies are not as volatile as Bitcoin is. The argument makes a lot of sense from a capital allocator perspective, and we'll see how this, this works in a real in a world of postmodern investing. So, um, you know, they have a thesis, they're fun. So, um, you know, they, they laid it out pretty well, I thought. Um, and it's a, it's a fairly compelling argument. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it necessarily reduced the, reduces the volatility as much as they think, but, you know, we'll, we'll be seeing what, what happens. Lynn Alden eviscerates ESG as she states, so much of what passes for being beneficial to ESG is really only virtual signaling with little to no actual impact. Her main point is that such virtual signaling is essentially a tax on production as a company can be ESG compliant without actually doing anything real good, without actually doing real good. In that sense, ESG is really a government regulation in a different form enforced through VCs who are really just bankers at this point. So... Um, you know, yes, the ESG narrative is uh, pretty big these days, especially among funds and so on. They want to do, uh, you know, promote ESG compliant companies and so on. But it, it's it's really becoming a regulation by bankers and VCs are really bankers at this point. So I, I don't really I, I, I think uh, her point is uh, really well taken. Uh, Stefan Levero pines on being a digital nomad on Bitcoin. He lays out the pros and cons fairly, uh, pretty fairly, going through why someone might want to do this and why someone may not. He also has some real practical tips on living on Bitcoin and getting work done. The post is a great resource for those that want to travel and explore the world a bit more than they have, and it's something I'll be referencing in years to come. Um, so he's currently a digital nomad. There's lots of other digital nomads, people that are living on Bitcoin, living in different places. Um, there, there's a lot of little gotchas that he talks about, and uh, the article itself is uh, great for learning how to live on Bitcoin going forward. Milo is a way to get a mortgage using Bitcoin. The details are a bit fuzzy, but the main idea is that you'd be able to get a low interest mortgage using Bitcoin as collateral. 
what the actual rates would be and how long the terms would be are still open questions. That said, this is a nice way not to have to sell your Bitcoin while still owning a place. I'm glad there are companies that are making stuff like this available, though for me personally, I generally like to stay away from leverage and debt. Um, so the idea here is that you can use uh, Bitcoin as collateral for a mortgage and, you know, should you not make your payments or something like that, or they'll liquidate your Bitcoin and pay off, uh, you know, whatever. That way you can have possession um, and you can, you know, do do what you want to do with uh, with that house, not have to sell your Bitcoin, uh, which is pretty important to a lot of people. So um, an interesting idea, but, you know, for me, it's kind of a form of leverage, maybe debt. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's it's a little bit tricky for me. Um, also, it's uh, it's all in beta. Uh, I don't think there's anything public yet, but it, it is uh, interesting nonetheless. Tantra Labs is closing down operations. This is one of the many uh, Bitcoin interest-bearing account providers who, if you custody Bitcoin with them, will return some percentage interest in Bitcoin. The company apparently operated on the assumption that the GBTC premium would stay high forever, which hasn't been true for almost a year now. As a result, they're going to be shut down. I've always thought services like this were too good to be true, and as far as re uh, results go, this one didn't end nearly as badly as it could have. Um, as we say in this space, not your keys, not your coin. So, um, you know, they're, they're like uh, BlockFi and a bunch of others who offered, uh, you know, a Bitcoin interest rate. Uh, but they, they were really just sort of leveraging uh, the GBTC premium. So they would uh, take that, take your Bitcoin, um, you know, put it into GBTC, sell it and then buy Bitcoin again. Um, and they would do that loop. Now, that that was available for a while, but it, it's basically been armed out. And at this point, GBTC is way under what the actual Bitcoin price is. So we're in this weird space where none of those companies can make money. And the reverse trade is not available because GBTC shares cannot be converted back to Bitcoin. So, you know, it's it's kind of this weird quandary where, um, you know, Barry and his friends continue to make their 2%. And um you know, it's a it's a very interesting, weird space. Uh, but yeah, you, you can see why, you know, these interest bearing things like they, they don't last. There are some interesting pieces of art on the blockchain. And no, I'm not talking about uh, I'm not talking NFTs. These are ASCII art embedded in op return. So you can go take a look at those. Some quick hits. You can store your C phrase for 10,000 years or more using this. It's basically uh, this thing called totem pass. It's a permanent storage of digital data basically on something like gold uh it's it's like permanently etched um and so on uh google is dipping its toes into bitcoin and so is intel so both both are looking at different things in different ways intel is uh working on mining google is looking into some sort of like card or payments or um crypto wallet or something like that Another week, another exchange gets hacked. This one is Crypto.com. Another week, another centralized altcoin is installed. This one is Solana, and uh, they've been absolutely hammered. Uh, another week, more uh, altcoins are shown to have major security flaws. Uh, this was a critical vulnerability for six token contracts on multi-chain. This is like you know, a bunch of different tokens like... Uh, you know, WETH and AVAX and Mad. I, I don't. I don't even know what most of those are, but you, you, you have these like security vulnerability things that happen all the time. I, I don't know why anyone thinks these are decentralized in any way. 
All right, some events. Bitcoin and the American Dream book launch is happening in Washington, D.C. on February 10th. Come join me and meet the authors as well as some influential D.C. people for the event. Um, there will be a bunch of people there. And if you want to join us, you're near D.C., please, uh, please come uh, go buy a ticket. <laughs> I am in London for Advancing Bitcoin March 3rd and 4th. I am also going to be at Bitcoin 2022 in Miami, April 6th to 8th. I'll also be doing the programming blockchain seminars in London, March 1st and 2nd, and Miami, April 4th and 5th. Uh, so, you know, that'll be uh, the next two venues uh, that I will be at. Um, I'll probably be at Oslo Freedom Forum, though I'm not sure if that's uh, necessarily been announced. Podcasts, etc. On this week's Bitcoin Fixes This, I talked to Mike Peterson about Bitcoin Beach. We talked about the changes he's seen there the past few years, how he thinks it led to the adoption of Bitcoin at the nation level, and how it's changing the Salvadoran identity. So you can uh, listen to me talk to Mike Peterson. I did spend uh, you know, a decent bit of time there, and I had an amazing time. Really beautiful place. I read through last week's newsletter, which you can find here. I talked to Max Kaiser on Kaiser Report about my impressions of El Salvador. I am also in a documentary about Bitcoin FUD. Here's the latest book, which is out now, Bitcoin and the American Dream on Amazon. My other books are The Little Bitcoin Book, Thank God for Bitcoin, and Programming Bitcoin. Unchained Capital is the sponsor of this newsletter. I'm an advisor and proud to be a part of a company that's enhancing security for Bitcoin holders. If you need multi-sig collaborative custody or Bitcoin-native financial services, learn more at Unchained.com. Fianta Linda Est, this song is...